So as, um, as you heard last night, God willing, at your Seder, you heard that there's a long history of uh, rabbis dis disagreeing with each other. By the same token, there is a long history, a long line of disagreement about a rab what a rabbi should and shouldn't talk about publicly. The ancient rabbis, for example, often used metaphors when it came to talking about sex. They avoided speaking negatively about kings and other political leaders. They frowned on talking about business issues on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, or a holiday. So what did they talk about? Well, it's like the story about a nice new young rabbi who begins working at a synagogue. After a few weeks in the job, he meets the president, and the president says to him, Rabbi, I can see how much you care and how hard you work, but I think you have to change up the subject of your sermons. So the rabbi asks him, what should I talk about? Well, the president says, you know, I wouldn't talk about Shabbat, because, you know, times are the way they are, and people need to make a living. And I wouldn't talk about keeping kosher either. Because, you know, people are what they are, and kosher food is very expensive. And I also, I wouldn't talk about the Torah portions too much, if, if I was you. Because most people feel that it's not at all that relevant to their life, and those stories are from a very, very different time, a long time ago. So the rabbi says, if I, if I can't talk about Shabbat, and I, I can't talk about kashrut, and I can't talk about the Torah portion, what should I talk about? And the president says to him, why, Rabbi, talk about Judaism. Which is to say that there is and there always has been a tension over what a rabbi should and shouldn't talk about. And one that's only grown in size and scale in recent years with political partisan divides, Donald Trump, Israel, BDS, to name just a small sample of topics. And you know by now that my approach generally has been to avoid politics whenever possible because I've long thought that I'm probably no better informed than you are and that we all get our news from the same places and we all read the same opinion columns. Now that said, I'm going to break my rule. But this one has a little bit of history to it. And I want to share it with you. When my office was moved, it's been lost to phase one of our renovation. Lots of buried paperwork came to the surface. As I went through one of the boxes, I found a certificate of marksmanship from the National Rifle Association, better known today as the NRA. I was born and raised in New York, as many of you know, and when I moved up to Toronto 26 years ago, my parents sent lots of boxes with me filled with my stuff. In one of those boxes was that certificate. At summer camp, they had a marksmanship course that I took using a 22 caliber rifle. It was one of my favorite things to do with summer camp, and apparently it had some target skill. At my house, my father had guns. He had two handguns and a rifle. The handguns required in New York State a special permit, which my father was eligible for because for a time he was trading in diamonds. And I knew he had guns, but apart from a time or two, I never saw them, not once. But having grown up in the States, 
No one actually ever questioned the idea that it was okay for people to own guns. Long a part of American culture, the founding story of the country was an armed revolution against the British. Cowboys and hunters is also said to be legal because of an amendment, the second one, to the American Constitution. But my attitude about guns undertook a serious and lasting change 30 years ago when I was in Israel. From the beginning, when I was introduced to guns in Israel, I was shown that guns were not toys. And while shooting was indeed fun, it was also wrought with a lot of danger. I was taught that every time that you pulled that trigger, no matter if it was in training or if, it, God forbid, it was in real time, that we were reminded over and over again that you set forth a bullet that you can never take back. The dirty secret that few know and even fewer talk about is the number of deaths and casualties that occur in the Israeli army during training. Even, even further obscuring the discussion is that people who fall in training in Israel are given the same marking on their tombstones as those who fall in battle. But a careful and sensitive scouring of Israeli news will give you reports of jeeps that flip over, killing the people who are traveling inside it. People that fall off cliffs while training. Guns that discharge because of carelessness or game playing. Just last week, a 20-year-old member of Duvdevan, Israel's elite undercover combat unit, died while playing with his gun. The mistakes that people make with guns is not just found with raw recruits. In fact, the newly drafted soldier is probably safer with his weapon than the average soldier because he is scared of it. I know I was. Israel is also a country built on guns. And guns are deeply written into its culture and Israel's very existence. So I wondered this week if there's a difference between Israel and America when it comes to guns. When American Governor Mike Huckabee, whose daughter Sarah is currently serving as the White House press secretary, when he visited Israel six, years ago, six weeks ago, he tweeted how being in Israel reminded him that more guns in the hands of the right people is a solution to events like the shootings at the Parkland High School in Florida. But a closer look shows that there is indeed a difference between Israel and the United States. And it exposes the faulty thinking behind Huckabee's tweets, which for the record was retweeted and repeated over and over again in right-wing news outlets in the United States, using Israel as proof that more guns equal more safety. In Israel, gun ownership is not a legal right. It's a privilege. So with few exceptions, gun owners in Israel are limited to owning just one pistol, and they must undergo extensive mental and physical tests before they can receive their weapon. Those who have not served in the military must wait until the age of 27 to apply for a firearms license. And gun owners, no matter what their age and no matter what their ranking, are limited 
to 50 rounds of ammunition per year. 50. But the differences run even deeper. Guns are carried in Israel because there are real threats, both domestic and outside of its borders. Real threats that in real time threaten real life and limb within the country. But I wondered, what are the threats facing people in the United States? That they need guns in the order and magnitude that they currently have, or that my father had. Let's be honest. The Second Amendment, imagine, imagine of the fear of a tyrannical government taking hold and the need of the people to be able to defend themselves. But today, <coughs> America's gun culture is ripe, not with a tyrannical government, but with paranoia, racism, extremism, and a kind of twisted contrarian thinking that actually is the threat, not the answer to any threat. A country with no real threats, that as people walking around openly armed, is the threat, both to unarmed citizens and law enforcement alike, which forces other people to arm up and it militarizes the police. You look at the police forces in the United States, they, they're paramilitary units. So why is this something to talk about on Pesach? The other week I read a small article by Yaakov Raz, an Israeli professor from Tel Aviv University. Raz is a PhD in Buddhist thought, and his article that I read was a discussion on freedom, which as a concept, he said, is something that Judaism and Buddhism share. Yes, only in Israel do Buddhist professors thinking about Torah on the week of Pesach. Now, Buddhism's foundational story, if you don't know, is the story of the Buddha who early in his life was a wealthy prince who leaves everything behind to wander the world and in eschewing ownership and material connections and personal connections, the story tells us that the Buddha achieves inner freedom. Judaism's foundational story, as we all read last night, is also the story of freedom, of a people enslaved and by and, by and through divine decree, they are set free and by doing so, they achieve peoplehood. But the similarities come apart when you look at it closer. The Buddha, we are told, actually had a son whose name was Rahula, which in Sanskrit means handcuff. And he left even his son behind, only reuniting with him many years later when he became what he is today, the Buddha. Which is to say that when the Buddha looked at earthly connections, the kind of connections that force responsibility on people, it was something that he felt he had to shed in order for him to achieve his inner freedom. So it could be that you could be anywhere in the world, in a democracy or a totalitarian regime, and discover as a Buddhist your inner freedom. And when I thought about this, I realized just how many countries that on one hand are primarily Buddhists and on the other hand are lacking almost all democratic function. Burma, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Laos, just to name a few. Because Buddhism first and foremost is driven internally and not externally. But the story of Judaism 
that we tell on Passover is a story of physical freedom and that this political physical freedom would be the only way that we could achieve redemption. Its narrative tells us repeated demands that the people must be taken out, that staying in Egypt would lead to the destruction of the Israelites. But the Torah never tells us what exactly of us would be destroyed. Physically? Maybe. But the Torah goes out of the way to tell us that the Israelites were multiplying at a fantastic rate. In fact, it was the scale of childbirth that frightened the Egyptians to begin with. It actually seems to be more of a destruction of the spirit, that a person's soul cannot thrive in a place where bodies are being crushed. Judaism's concern for body over soul is seen so often that we almost take it for granted. Can you name even one religious observance that isn't put aside for health concerns? You can't because there isn't one. And not just health concerns, but even human dignity is always at the front seat when it comes to weighing matters. Or the overwhelming outweighing percentage of Jews in the life sciences or the legal profession, which all speaks with the concern for safety and well-being, for lives grounded in safety and security. Pesach is a reminder to us that yes, our bodies are shells, but the Torah wasn't given while we were slaves in Egypt. It was only given after the people were taken out of it. Saying to us that spiritual enlightenment's greatest possibilities are possible when people aren't endangered physically. Which I have to admit, was said in a much better way by a personal hero of mine, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Salanter lived a hundred years ago and made his life's work about reminding people how the work of heaven starts here in the earth. And he famously told his congregation not to fast one year on Yom Kippur when there was a cholera outbreak and lots of condemnation came his way. And Salanter would go on to say years later that there are those who worry about their stomachs first and everyone else's souls, but they're wrong because our task is to worry about our souls and everyone else's stomach. It seems to me that the problems of guns will not be solved by more guns. And that those who say that they need a gun to protect their family are actually saying that given the choice between them having the right to a gun or innocent people dying because of the easy access to guns, they would choose to have their right to have a gun. And here in the relative safety of Canada, we are not immune from the pathos and pain that we see almost weekly down south. The border that separates us is just a line on a map. And when the events occur down south, we are all glued to our TV sets and we feel the pain. In the past four months, there have been 17 school shootings in the United States, resulting in the deaths of 44 human beings. Let us pray that the last school shooting is the 